In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Glory to Thee, O God, glory to Thee. Heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, O Treasure of every good and bestower of life, come and dwell in us and cleanse us from every stain and save our souls, O Good One. A lot of things in spiritual life, even Christ, he used worldly things to help to explain to us because we, because we live on earth, because we are part of the world, we have bodies, we're not angels. So therefore, for us to understand spiritual concepts, a lot of times the church fathers, and as I said, Christ used parables of farmers and growing things and weeds and all these type of things to explain. St. John Chrysostom says that when you marry someone, you can't exchange them. Even though the philosophy of the world today is that uh, it's, you know, if you get married, if it doesn't work out, you dispose of the person, and that could be disposing of them through divorce or disposing of them physically by killing them off or something, because some people even do that. But St. John Chrysostom says there, and of course based on Christ's commandments, that what God has joined must never be separated. So by understanding that when you get married, or those who are married, that it is a commitment once and for all, then you begin to look at marriage completely different. If you have not entered marriage, or you are not thinking of entering marriage with that understanding of God's command, which is never to separate unless for adultery, and even then the church fathers say if you forgive the spouse then you will get a great reward because it says you may separate doesn't doesn't say you have to separate then the whole thing about marriage would be completely different so why should we care if christ says not to divorce and why should we care if the church fathers say that you must never divorce and the reason is simple if someone is if someone has salvation as their basis in their life, then they will care because we have to care. Those who want to be saved have to care what Christ's commandments are. In other words, Christ being God, when we say Christ's commandments, obviously it's God's commandments. And when we say the church fathers, when they teach, if they're inspired by the Holy Spirit and, they are, and their teachings are agreed to by the whole church, that is from God as well. So those, that's why, I've, as I've said in the past, I, n I don't talk to people and say to them, um, oh, you know, you have to do this or do that or do this, you know, unless they've got salvation as their basis. There's no point in telling someone that you shouldn't listen to worldly music or you shouldn't go here or you shouldn't wear this or you shouldn't do this, and et cetera, et cetera. It's all pointless. So my talk today, which I'm going to try and do with God's help, is will be useful if you people that are sitting here have salvation as your basis. If you don't have salvation as your basis, then it will just not make any much sense to you, and you're going to say, and why is this and why is that? Now, last talk, I spoke a lot about, in the nearly three quarters of it, about or half of it or more, about dating, etc. 
And at the end, from what I got some feedback, which is good, I also got that box there for now on so people can make comments. You can make them directly to me if you like, but if some people don't want it, they can write it there. Comments, suggestions, and questions. So if you have a question that you might want, and I can look at it, I might not answer it now, but I can think about it and might answer it in, make a topic out of it or answer it within the talk, whenever that might be. Suggestions are good. Like, obviously, most of you will say, can you finish earlier? And the other one on the comments will be what you like, what you don't like, etc., whatever. So I spoke a lot about dating, and I got, I got quite a lot of feedback on last month's talk, and a lot of people were happy with the talk, but some people had some questions like, um, plus a lady that's not here tonight, but she asked, well, if you don't date, then how are you supposed to meet someone to get married? Now, as for the rest of you which are already married, you might find the topic to be not necessary, but it is. One, because you've got children and that will maybe one day get married, so you need to hear. Secondly, you can also see the blunders that you made in your own life, by whereby did you ask God, did, did, God, did you trust in God to help you find your spouse, etc. And if you didn't, and you're in a situation which may not be proper, then, then uh, through the talk you will learn that you stay where you are and have that as your, what's said in Russian, podvig in Greek, askisi, which is that's your cross. And St. John Chrysostom again says that if you've married a spouse, which is extremely difficult, then you will be like a martyr if you endure. So the talk is for everyone. I decided that I will, I think I will speak a little bit more about what I spoke about last week because I didn't get into the one about the courtship, which I will do today and some other things. And I think it's good for me to, because someone said to me, don't hurry because today was meant to be another topic, but I said, don't hurry, just cover the things in a bit more detail because people will benefit better instead of just hurrying, hurrying, hurrying. And that's what I'm going to try and do. So I made a few little notes. I want to speak more about being single. Now, single, people believe, means fun. Being irresponsible, not having the pressures of life. Being single means that you're going to enjoy your life before you get married because when you get married, you don't enjoy your life. See, all these attitudes are detrimental to one's soul. And, you know, and if you put that across to your children, you know, some people that are already married with children, they put that attitude across. I got married too early or I got married, you know, and some people even are so stupid enough to actually say uh, to the person I got married to, the, you know, I shouldn't have married your mother or your father, etc. These comments are really very, very bad. If you believe you shouldn't have married the person because you didn't ask or whatever, then make that uh, between you, God, and the spiritual father. Not discuss these things with children, especially when they're young, and disturb them more than what they're already going to become disturbed from the world. Now, a lot of other people think that being single is a time for studying, which is, which is correct, getting a job, that's okay, you know, benefiting, you know, and, and progressing in your career, making money. And there's others, of course, who believe that you don't make money, but you just spend it while, while you're single. And basically, 
It's a life in general, a single life as we've seen today, is a life where the person does not have responsibility. So, if you've got a person who's irresponsible at 12, 13, 14, 15, 18, just irresponsible, 20, 21, 22, 25, and it depends on when they're going to get married, maybe even 30, they're irresponsible. And, I, and you might say, well, are we all irresponsible? Are a lot of people responsible? Yes, in general, people are quite irresponsible. In general, of course, there are exceptions. All of a sudden, this person at 20, 25 or 30 or whatever age they're going to get married, everyone's different, they're going to become like, you know, Superman when he used to go in the phone booth and take off his glasses and take off his suit and all of a sudden he was strong. And that's the same as a person where they're completely irresponsible in a lot of, in, in, in a lot of ways, one could say. And then suddenly, when they get married, they're going to become responsible. This is not correct. And if you can say, oh, I knew someone who was a, a drug or someone who was this and someone who was that, and as soon as they got married, they became really better. Well, we don't know what goes on behind closed doors, what's behind there. But let's just say there might be an exception. The church father says, do not make exceptions rules. As I said before, and I think it was in this here or somewhere else, where I made a talk where I talked about um, St. Ignatius, a great uh, saint, a Russian saint, where he spoke about these things where people take exceptions in the spiritual life and try to make a rule out of it. Yes, there are some exceptions, but we go what's called the golden way, which is the way that is taught by our fathers, by the Gospels, etc. Not exceptions. Exceptions are exceptions. They're not, you know, a rule. So, as I said, the single life should be a preparation. One of the, one of the purposes of a single life is the preparation for marriage or the preparation for monasticism, or it might not be either, which we're going to come to later on, but there is some type of spirit out there in the, in the orthodox world which says you must get married or you must become a monastic, but you can't be single. And I used to believe that a bit too. I didn't really know. But until I started to deal more with people and I started to see that some people shouldn't get married, some people just didn't occur, not because there's something wrong, just didn't occur. And I began to change my mind. And then I, later on, when I read some of the modern, modern elders, which we've got some books at the back, Porfirios, etc., in his, in his um, writings, he actually given advice to young people and he says, you know, you might not get married, you might not become monastic. Maybe God has for you to be single in the world. So don't have this thing because some people have this, uh, I know someone who, who was, who years ago, but, you know, he didn't want anyone to think that he had gay, that he was gay, which he wasn't. And then all of a sudden he forced himself to get married when he really didn't have any interest to get married. So if you don't haven't got interest to get married, why would you get married? So no one was going to call you gay. It's things like that are, 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 um, are silly. So you can be married, you can be monastic, you can be single. What 
Elder Porfirio says in one of his epistles, or one of his, one, in, in, in the writings that, that they've written about him, he was given advice. He said, the main thing is, seek Christ. Do your spiritual life, seek Christ, and then the doors will open to you. There's no need to be obsessed about either becoming a monastic. There's no need to be obsessed about even about marriage. There's no need to be obsessed about anything. Just do your life as a single person. Now, some of you are already married. Some of you weren't, might have actually come to Christ as a married person. Already married, you didn't really, weren't in the church much before. Everyone's different. Spiritual life should be practiced, especially when the person is young. Another elder said that don't wait until you get older and not even wait till you get married or wait till you become a monastic. But especially I like the part about don't wait till you become old because when you're old, your brain tends to slow down and physically and mentally it's difficult and doing a spiritual life is difficult. You know, people think, oh, I'm an... Oh, monks pray all day, they're just lazy and this and that. Well, you know, pray. You pray a little bit every day and you'll see how difficult it is. I told once a, a young girl, you know, um, just do, I think I've mentioned this before, just do five prostrations a day, that's all. Nothing else. Don't read anything, just do that, which I already knew she wasn't going to do it. And she came back to me and she says, I can't do it. Even five prostrations, not like the monastics that do 150 and 100, depending on their health and the fasting that they have to do and the services. You know, I was speaking to someone earlier on that said that they can't even go to church, for example. Not putting the person down, I'm just saying, for example. Why? Because there's a warfare. Why, is the devil going to let you go to church that easy? Is the devil going to allow you to go and pray? And spiritual books, some people can't even listen to spiritual, can't even read spiritual books. So spiritual life is difficult. You don't wait till you're old. You've got to do it when you're young, when you've got the vibrance of the mind and, the, and your body, etc. So, I wrote here that without this preparation, whichever way, but we'll talk about marriage. Without this preparation, as a single person, marriage can become really unbearable, like you're going through torture. Now, I'm going to give an, an, like an analogy, like an example which I mentioned last time, we need training. For example, soldiers, when they're going to go to, to fight, they have to be trained. You don't go and put on a battlefield someone who has not trained. The Olympics are on now. They're on the second day, I think. And you see there those uh, athletes. Wouldn't it be absurd for me to go there and say, I'm here to compete? But once... They notice that I can't even pick up anything. Then they might say to me, we've been training here for years and years and years to come to the Olympics. This is the same for married life. And people don't understand that. Married life is like, oh, actually, it's above the Olympics. Married life is above war. Married life is one of the most difficult things for one to do. As we know that God created Adam and Eve as a couple in paradise. 
His first miracle was at the wedding of Cana, again to do with marriage. Not only that, St. Paul uses the relationship of Christ and the church, that Christ is the head and the church, which is us, is the body. He uses that as a way to explain marriage, which is that the man is the head and the woman is the body. So it's such a great thing that they even that St. Paul uses that great mystery, which is Christ, the head, and the, and, the, and, the, and the church is the body. And what God has joined should never be separated, we hear. And yet, people take marriage as being something which is really light. And that book which I gave, which I'm... Anyway, the book, most of you have got it. It's called Marriage, um, a Spiritual an arena or something like that. Actually, when I bought that book and I saw the word arena, it didn't click until I started doing the talk and I got arena. Oh, that's right. It's actually in an arena is where you battle. And I didn't understand at the beginning what that actual title meant. It means that marriage is a battle, just like monasticism is, but here we're speaking about marriage. Marriage is a battle. If you do not have the training as a single person it's going to be hard. For those who never trained but yet entered into marriage because of whatever reason, then it's going to, I have to say the truth, it's going to be hard for those people. I'm not going to lie. It's going to be extremely hard for those who were not prepared somewhat as a single person. And unfortunately, we see as a result of, those, of that ill preparation when people aren't prepared properly, we see emotional problems, we see divorces, we see the children, the shipwrecks of children as well. And, you know, just dealing with people in general, especially when you get deep into their souls and you see how much there's pain and there's how much damage that a lot of young people have, or even older people, from the relationship of their parents. And they are actually really... A, some of them are really so affected that they can't function in life from these types of marriages which are not, you know, where the people aren't prepared. And as I said, it's not impossible because with God all things are possible. If someone has entered a marriage in which they weren't prepared, then it's harder but not impossible for that person or people or whatever, one or two, it might be two of them might decide to repent and start to lead a Christian life. But only one may repent. Whatever, the, the person has to then ask God fervently, really, really pray to God to help them in their development. So I, last month I gave you out a little pamphlet which was a wonderful example of God's help in finding a spouse. It's from the Old Testament. This story is simple, so I, I, I like simple things. If you can get out of the Old Testament some simple things, because some people get mixed up and they say, see what it says there, that if you catch someone in adultery, you stone them, and, you know, they take things out of context. Some people are fanatical and mentally ill, and they actually do take things out of context without understanding. That doesn't mean that we don't read the Old Testament because of that. Even the New Testament, you can make mistakes and not understand unless you've got the church fathers to help you. But in general, the Old Testament is more difficult. 
So it was about Abraham. The time had come for him to find his son, Isaac, a wife. And he was living in an area where it wasn't his type of people. They were what's called the Canaanites, which I think there must be some form of, um, well, they weren't the, those who believed in the one God. They must have been like pagan or mixed, mixtures of things. And he said to his servant, his trusted servant, he said, I want you to go and I want you to go to my own country because God had told him to come to this new place where he was. But he said to his servant, go to the, where, I'm, where I'm from, to my relatives, and I want you to find a wife from there. Now, that's good in itself because it shows you one thing, which is to try, well, we, how we should marry those who are of the same faith. Now, there were a lot of, from what I read from St. John Chrysostom's interpretations there, there were a lot of girls in the area that he was, Abraham, which were rich, etc., etc., but he didn't want them. He wanted someone to be of his faith and from his area. Does that mean we should only marry a Russian, should only marry Russian and Greek, only Greek, etc.? No, because we have many cases whereby those things occur. Statistically, mixed marriages of, um, I won't say other religions, just mixed, meaning even if the other person becomes orthodox, which is good, but it does sometimes pose a problem with the traditions, etc., etc. There are some excellent examples of marriages that the two people, one of them, the other person became orthodox, and they are actually quite good. But in general, there is complications. Most important, as we're going to come later on, is that the person is of the same faith. So this is what it shows here, that Abraham wanted someone of the same faith. So his servant gave the oath and immediately set out for his way, and he took a lot of gifts, etc., which was a tradition in those days. Now, the servant, Eliezer, I think, stopped at a well, and it was evening. And that was where it was customary for the women to come out to collect water from the well. Now, those who are into the feminism might say, and why, and this, and that, it doesn't interest me. That was the way it was then, and that's it. The women would come out and collect uh, the water to take back to the house. And we're going to come a bit more about that feminism because that's got some good points, but it actually, actually has some disasters as well. Then the servant prayed to God and he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I stand here by the well of water and the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water. And let it come to pass that the maiden whom, to whom I shall say, Please let down your water jug that I may drink. And she shall say, drink, and I will also give your camels to drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant, Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Now, just that needs a lot of discussion. Firstly, we have to be careful of such prayers. 
signs and things like that can be deceptive. You say, well, if we're learning the example, shouldn't we follow the example of this? Yes and no. Yes, if our faith and our spirituality is great, and no, when our spirituality and our minds are darkened because of our passions. And all of us, including myself, we all live in a world where it's very difficult to actually keep your heart and mind pure. As a result of that, we are darkened to, uh, to a large extent, some more and some less. And therefore, when we make a prayer like that, we don't know whether the sign or the inspiration what we might feel or in the enlightenment that we think we're having, is it from God? Is it from the devil? Is it from our fantasy? Is it from something that we saw on TV? Or is it because, you know, we are on the wrong medication and it's affecting our minds? How do we know? That's why we have all those elders that people ran to, to who were pure, which are obviously not many of them around, which were pure, and just to a large extent, they were able to communicate with God. We can't. And therefore, that is why it's very dangerous to do such prayers. You know, like people say, I'm going to make a prayer that, you know, if it rains at four o'clock and this happens and this happens or this, or, you know, like little Catholics are into that a lot. You know, um, it rained during a certain time, which is God's mercy, which shows that that person's a saint or other things along those lines. But, you know, for us as people who are somewhat darkened because of our passions, I mean, look, if we are jealous, which we all are, very hard to know how God is going to communicate. If we're full of passion or lust or hate or envy or um, uh, we vainglory, we love to be noticed, pride, we get angry when someone's not nice to us, when someone doesn't say hello to us, all these things. And as St. Paul says, if I, have, if I give my body to be burnt, if I give this and give that and I have no love, it doesn't do anything. If I give all my money to the poor, if I allow my body to be burnt, if I get tortured even, but I have no love, then it's for nothing. So how many of us can actually say we've got love? So the more you notice that you don't have love, then the more progressed you are in some ways. Unless you're in, you're living still in the 60s of the flower power days and you're walking around with roses in your hair and you think that, you know, and most of those people were drugged anyway, and think and they go, love, and I've got love and love for the world and love, peace and all these type of things. Those people were completely drugged out of it and they believed that they had love. They were seeking something. I actually feel sorry for them because a lot of those hippies came out of a time when America, after the Second World War, became really um, materialistic, really materialistic. Remember that I think I read that two-thirds of the world's production was in American hands after the wars. And therefore, America became very prosperous after the war. And 
these kids in the 60s that went through these hippie period, they were children of those parents that were very, very, there was a lot of what's called affluence. They were very, the Americans became really rich. And they never had time for their children. That's a hint. They never had time to even talk to their children because they were too busy working, making a lot of money. That's another hint. And their children, if you read a lot of that period, one of the biggest things they had was that they just couldn't, firstly, they hated their parents because they felt that they never had received anything of love. They knew that they were deprived of love. And they started to try and seek to find that love, to find what's missing. Like those people that were in San Francisco that were, you know, that were really out of it and had fleas all over them, a lot of them, and they were really dirty and, and things like that, a lot of those people had parents that were rich. They didn't want their parents. They despised the parents because the parents didn't give them love. That's not only from the 60s, that's now. And if you speak to people, it's the continual same message. My parents had no time for me. My parents didn't, um, uh, didn't even talk to me, etc., 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 etc. And then there are people say, oh, but are you, you know, why doesn't my child speak to me? Um, we used to speak when we were young. What? Speak what about? Do you want a paddle pop? Do you want to watch this next show on TV? Is that the, um, is that the, um, the, the, the amount of the communication? And then they say, but my child doesn't talk to me anymore. But you never did talk to the child in the first place. Because if you spoke to the child from young, if you gave the child love from young, then as the child grows up, even if it goes a bit off, it will always remember that you are a person that, that, that they can communicate with. If the person can't come to the parent, it means, in general, there's exceptions, of course, where someone can really go off and lose their minds, but in general, the child can communicate. And my experience with families today is that there is no communication between children and the parents, and that's really bad, which will come more to that. Why did the servant of Abraham make a prayer and say, whoever I say, give me water, and she says yes, and also feeds my camels? Why did he make that prayer? This is really important and profound, as we say. And the, re and the reason being is because Abraham, as we know, was famous for his hospitality. Strangers, as soon as he sees strangers travelling, he would say, come here, and he would wash their feet, and he would give them food, and he would uh, feed their camels, whatever they had in those days, and he would give them somewhere to sleep. He was hospitable. And the servant, being wise, enlightened, said, well, the girl which will marry my master's son has to have a similar background so therefore, this test that he made was to show that this person not only agreed to give water to him, but also went even a step further and said, and I will also water your camels. This shows us the importance of what I spoke about last month, which is how we have to find people who are similar. And I've spoken to a lot of married couples and you'll see how much arguments there are a lot of times from just because of the different background, even if they're both Greek, both Russian, both Serb, it doesn't matter, the different background. For example, 
a man gets married to someone and that man's mother was a person who was a really efficient housewife, for example. She, was, she used to cook and clean and she was really effective like that. Then he marries someone who comes out of a family where they're slobs, for example. Right? Just full on, you know, canned food is their subs, you know, like canned food or just whatever, or Kentucky Fry and McDonald's, etc. And that's their food. So he gets married and he goes, love is more important and love and love and love and love. So they get married. After a while, that person, it's going to start to bother him. And, and it's going to start comparing. And say, well, my mother, you know, she always had food. And, you know, and then the man might notice that the woman is not even feeding the children or just giving the, child, the children canned food. You might say, oh, this is all trivial. But it's not. A lot of divorce courts, etc. they discuss all this stuff continually. You know, the woman will say, oh, this man that I married, and I've said before, he doesn't even take out the garbage. You know, even that. I remember speaking to this woman and she said to me, um, I had to go to the hospital for a procedure. I think she had a um, serious procedure. I think it was something to do with the breast. She might have had some graft. I'm not sure they had to take a test. And she went to the hospital. And her husband said, I'll be there, I'll be there, don't worry, I'll be there. Didn't come because he's a workaholic. So he had to go and do his jobs. And that, that woman could not stop speaking about that that really wounded her why because the father of this guy worked seven days a week made a lot of money but that was his that was him seven days a week his son worked seven days a week now when this woman married him obviously she didn't think about all those things and i remember because I had contact with these people, I remember when the when the in-laws were meeting, you know, before that, before the, these, this guy and girl got married, the father, when he when he's speaking to the in-laws, the future in-laws, to the girl's parents, I think it was, I can't remember. Anyway, and he said, "I assure you that my son, let's just say John, that my son John, he's a hard worker." His dedicated worker, that was his uh, reference for his son. Nothing else, but that is a hard worker. And true, his son, yes, that's true. His son was, you can't dispute that he wasn't a hard worker working seven days a week. As a result of that, the, the woman, after many years of being uh, ignored, not shown any attention, any love, became alcoholic, became a, a, a drug addict because her husband was never there. So true that the, the father's um, um, reference, whatever, whatever you can call it, was that my son's a hard worker, that was true, and that was it. That's not enough for a good marriage, as that father thought. Because as that father worked seven days a week, he thought, well, I work seven days a week, and I'm a good father in his mind, he thinks, and therefore my son is he's a hard worker. That's a whole disaster. So that was a little bit of a, a side issue, but 
the, the, the thing I wanted to say is that it is important that we look at backgrounds of people because it does play a role in the marriage later on. I've heard people tell me a lot of times that the fights that occur, and you ask the, the wife, for example, why are you fighting? goes, oh, this, he's nothing like my father, or he's nothing like this, or nothing like that. You know, they compare. So this servant of Abraham, enlightened by God, he understood if his, if his master Abraham was hospitable, obviously that influenced his son Isaac to be hospitable, the future wife has to come from a background which is also uh, has that as a virtue, which is hospitality. So the maiden said, drink, my lord, and right away she lowered the water jug from her shoulder and gave him to drink. And when the servant had drunk, the maiden said, I will draw forth for you, for your camels also, until they have finished drinking. So that's the sign that he wanted. Remember, we don't do things like that. Our way is we pray, and later on I'll explain to you through spiritual fathers, through friends, through relatives, through parents, etc., for God to show his will that's a safer way than to do things like that. You can still pray, God, show me who is for me. That's okay. But don't make prayers of, if if a leaf falls from that tree in the next 30 seconds, then I will know that the girl reading the newspaper underneath the tree is for me. You know, things like that, it's just a bit silly. When the camel stopped drinking, then the servant gave her all these presents, and he said to her, who are you? Who's your, who, whose daughter are you? Tell me, and is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? Again, for more testing. The maiden's name was Rebecca. She answered, I'm the daughter of such and such. We have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. He only asked for what? A room. What did she say? We have, yes, we have room. We've also got straw, so it can be much more comfortable for them. And we also have feed, in other words, food, which means food for um, for, the, for, for, for him and food for, the, for his animals. So it was further. See, she, he only asked for lodging, somewhere to stay. And then she said, yes, and this and that and that and that. Again, hospitable, which is how Abraham was. So uh, Elias knelt down and gave thanks to God that he had heard his prayer. Rebecca ran to the house and told all this to her mother and all in the house. Rebecca had a brother and he ran out and he said to the servant of Abraham, come in, a blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I prepared the house and room for camp uh, and I'll prepare the house and room for camps. See the brother similar, similar background. Yeah, the parents are hospitable. Rebecca is the name of the girl. The brother's hospitable. Perfect family for that particular situation. See, as we say, sometimes arranged marriages had some good use, even though we might say, oh, arranged marriages are really bad, and a lot of feminists will say, and no one's going to tell me who to marry. No, no one's going to tell anyone what to marry. But there was some good some um, good things, and even I will lead you to say that even still there is some good in arranged marriages in the sense of I know someone and I know their background. There's nothing wrong with that. There's like, and then you're getting the person to force them. 
That is not bad. But when we say, I'm not going to have anyone tell me who to marry, I'm going to choose my own person, which is true, and I'm going to go and meet them at the disco or meet them here or meet them there. I don't think it's really spiritual or romantic to meet. But that um, Princess Mary met her future husband at the disco at the 2000 Olympics. What's his name? Um, Prince Frederick who's the um, Crown Prince of Denmark. See, that, that was a really happy ending, even though they do have a lot of problems now because he was a playboy type of person. And I think from what I've heard that he's continuing on the same way. You know, maybe he didn't, he didn't work himself out. You know, he was a playboy person and met her. And then later on, he didn't really, you know, he was wrapped with her, but later on, he didn't really struggle to stop that type of way of life, and he tends to do the same thing. But anyway, that's just showing you that how important it is to work yourself out before you get married and marry people who are of similar backgrounds. Of course, there are exceptions, and sometimes God can even help us, even lead us to marry someone who is not the same as our background, but... He has a special reason for that, which we'll look at that as we go on. And then the servant said, the servant of Abraham told them what he's there for. He told them about the whole miracle, about the sign, what happened and that. And then the parents saw the hand of God and they actually said, we can't hold back. They asked Rebecca and then they let her go with the servant back to where Abraham was with his son Isaac. This is the doing of the Lord. We cannot contradict you. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be your master's son's wife as the Lord has spoken. Again, Abraham spiritual. The servant is spiritual. These parents are spiritual to be able to discern that this was from God. You don't just, someone comes up and says to you, I want to marry your daughter and I had a dream or I felt this, I prayed like that. You know, these things are very dangerous, especially when we are living in times where the majority of people are darkened. So you don't know the thoughts, as I said. Is it demonic? Is it from God? Is it physiological? Because we can have, you know, there's dreams, for example. Dreams can be from God which are very rare, and dreams can be from the devil. Dreams can be natural. Visions can be from God. Visions can be hallucinations and things like that, just a physical thing, not necessarily demonic, just it could be tired. It could be in the desert. It could be on, as I said, these medic sometimes these medications give these effects. So what's the, what's the golden rule? Don't believe them. Don't seek them. Don't seek to see visions. Don't seek to have dreams from God. Remember the saints, when they would see a vision, they would say, I don't want to see you. And, at one, and I said one time that, that, that the vision was Christ. And then the saint, uh, and then Christ stood there, and the saints said, I don't want to see you. If, you're, if you are Christ, I'll see you when I'm saved. That's when he knows for sure that he's in heaven. Now, he wasn't sure. And did Christ punish him? No, he praised him because he was careful. We tend to 
because of our active fantasies, especially when we, you know, when we're worldly, uh, we have an active fantasy. Like women have their fantasies, and men, young boys, have all different fantasies. Some believe they're going to be soccer players. Others believe they're going to become movie stars. Others have fantasies they're going to become rich or whatever. They're going to marry someone which is fantastic. All these fantasies. And the television promotes fantasy in our minds more than the older generation. When you watch TV from day one of the, when you're born, it really promotes fantasy because the child does not know what's reality, what's not. It's just watching images continue. That makes the person sick. And I want to say a statement which is really harsh. When you put your children in front of a television at, from basically early, basically sometimes even from when they're born, doesn't matter, in the, especially in the first few years, which even the psychologists are saying now, how bad it is, but I'll go a step further. When you put a child in front of the television, it's like you're getting a hammer and you're bashing it over the head and giving the child permanent brain damage, but more so you are damaging them emotionally forever. Okay. And that is, people might say, oh, he's fanatical. That's okay. Let it be. But when you read the holy, a lot of the Holy Fathers, modern-day fathers, you see that how serious it is. St. Ignatius Branchininov, again, in his book, which they've translated into English, one of his, or they, they call it the arena. And in there, he speaks about women who come to spiritual life. And he says that women who have read a lot of romance books, when they come to spiritual life, they have that romantic type of attitude in their spiritual life. Like when they pray, it's like, you know, it's like they're singing opera. I don't know. It's like it's very emotional because they have programmed their souls to be emotional through those books. He just talks about romance books. This is interesting. And obviously, the people he's speaking about are women who are older. You're not going to see a a seven-year-old read a romance book. One, they probably won't be able to read it, and two, they're not interested. But we're speaking about women who started to read these books maybe in those days, because he lived in the 19th century, maybe... You know, 15, maybe 16, 17, and older, older people who read. And he said, listen to this, very harsh. Doesn't mean that's absolutely true, because remember that what one saint says does not necessarily make it 100% correct unless the whole church agrees. Now, in the case of, of, of television, we don't have in the canons rules. He who watches television will go to hell or he who watches television can't commute. We don't have rules because television didn't uh, exist in the old days. But we have the Holy Fathers from Romania, Bulgaria, Georgia, Russia, Greece, all over the place, and they all pretty much say the same thing. It's like a consensus. In other words, they all agree that the television is extremely dangerous in particular, I've noticed when I read their writings, with children when, when, when they're young. So St. Ignatius says that these women who read romance books, and in our cases now, watch romance movies, their understanding of spiritual life is romantic. They kind of go into it in a, 
in an emotional way, not a spiritual. And he actually says this really harsh statement. He says, this is what he said. He said, women who read these materials become, don't, don't, don't get too upset, but this is what he said, they become inaccessible to the Holy Spirit. Now, that's very harsh statement. In other words, what he's saying is that those women, for example, which is not only women now because we know now that these movies, everyone watches them, and they all affect our emotions, especially when you're you know, six months old, one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old. I still remember to this day things that I watched when I was very young, but I was born in 58, and I don't think my parents got the television because the television came out in around 56, 57, and I think mine probably got it maybe years later. I think I was spared to some degree. Maybe that I, they might have got it when I was three or four. Still, I'm damaged. But I do remember certain things which I saw, which I believe caused a lot of problems when I was young. Because, you know, sometimes these things come. And I remember, I do get flashbacks even now of scenes that I saw as a young child and it affected me, and I think it gave me anxiety, and it gave me bad dreams, and it gave me this, and I was older. Imagine the ones that are in the front, six months old, and one older, that I don't even remember, terrorised. So he says that those women who read these things as older people, become in a, uh, they cannot gain the Holy Spirit. Now, that is very harsh. And you might say, well, what do you think? It doesn't really matter what I think, but... Um, that's just my opinion, but I do believe from little experience that I've got that there is a lot of truth to that. I have noticed that I remember dealing with a young girl, not a young, she was a bit old, but she watched a lot of television continually and she could not, she could not lead a spiritual life at all, completely, at all. You might say, that's just her. That's true, that was her, but I also dealt with another 20, 30 and 40 other people and they all seem to follow the same pattern. They really cannot, they find it hard to pray, they find it hard to go to church, they find it hard to do anything. It's really difficult. So those of you who've got young children, stop. Those of you who already did it with your, with your children, then repent for doing it and ask God to do something for your children. A lot of mental problems that exist now come from, apart from this lack of love, a lack of proper upbringing in Christ, also comes a lot from that, from that um, television. When children should look at parents as an example, look at those at church as an example. That's who they imitate. When they're in front of the television for hours, they're not looking at their parents, they're not looking at anyone, they're looking at what's on there. So what they see there is how they imitate. And I've spoken to a lot of young people, they say that I don't know how to act. I don't know what to feel. I don't even know who I am. I don't, and then you wonder why a lot of people commit suicide, or a lot of people have breakdowns, a lot of people are on medication. They are damaged mentally, and they are damaged, in, in particular, emotionally. Now, that is 
the reason that these days a lot of people are medicated, I mean, look, this country is just too much. We're speaking about, um, oh, I saw it on the um, news once that there was um, just on sleeping tablets, it was um, 20 or 30% of the population of Australia. And how about the antidepressants and all the other medication? It's really, really very bad. You know, I'm not telling you to those who, who might be on those things to stop them because you can actually cause, you can't abruptly stop things. Some people need them at this stage of their life, whatever. But, you know, with God, you always have to pray for his grace to help you and heal you. But do not believe that you have to stop. Now, as for those who their doctors are telling them to take it, then they have to examine, are you really depressed or are you just... Um, upset because as some people say, oh, I don't have a boyfriend or I don't have a girlfriend or I didn't get that job or I didn't get into uni or I, or I um, don't have friends or whatever. You know, sometimes these things in the church can be overcome. But then there's physiological reasons why people have mental illnesses. There's hormone problems and other reasons. So there's a thing. I'm not saying because someone said once to me, oh, you're against all type of those things. I'm not against psychiatry. I'm not Tom Cruise. I'm telling you that it's overdone, and for some people it's necessary, for some it's not, etc. I'm not here to say who, who, which one's which. That's, I can't have that discernment. But I know in Greece, as I've said before, that they are psychiatrists. Some psychiatrists are even priests. But in general, in Greece, the faithful who need to go to psychiatrists go to psychiatrists, and the psychiatrists work together with the spiritual father. Things that you don't see here. We're, we don't have that comfort. But in Greece, I think in Russia, uh, probably the same, there are priests who work in conjunction with these medical doctors to help their people. Yeah, now, um, I was speaking to a, a woman who's quite ill. I think she goes into psychosis, but she just loses reality. And um, she's been committed a number of times, but she was going to a psychiatrist, but her psychiatrist, I think, was a priest as well. And other psychiatrists who aren't priests work together with the priest. They do both, spiritual and psychological. Somehow, I think I went off tender, that, that doesn't matter. Uh, anyway, and then the next day, he left with Rebecca and went back to, the, um, uh, to, to his suck, and then, they, and then they got married. So I wrote a little note here which says... Um, the same thing when a person's looking for a bride or looking for a bridegroom. First of all, we have to look whether the person is loved by God and enjoys um, God's grace. In other words, a person who leads a spiritual life. Very important to look for that. If the person is leading a spiritual life, everything will happen. Seek first the kingdom of heaven, and all else will come. And look, it says here, um, for a person who has gentleness, humility, kindness, etc. Now, one young girl there asked last time, um, but there's not many people like that. And I thought about that even more. Well, I answered you last time. But I thought about that even more, and I, and I do firmly believe that 
When someone is leading a spiritual life and is continually asking God to show his will, that person is trying to unite himself with Christ, then God begins to, because he foreknows, he knows the future, he sees you where you're going, and he prepares someone else from your prayer where you're asking God if it's meant for me to get married and show me the person which that person might come in 10 years time that prayer I believe can at that moment your prayer can make someone somewhere else some say you're a girl and uh, can make uh, another uh, gentleman a young might even be just a boy God begins to prepare that person knowing that that person is for you. So it is important the spiritual life and letting God work everything out. Another important thing with um, Rebecca here, which is which leads to the theme of the talk, a lot of it, is that Rebecca, when she was uh, visited by God, because that was like a miracle, and she was given her future husband, what was she doing? What was she doing at the time? St. John Chrysostom explains this. She was going out to get the water. She was doing her daily chores. She was doing her obligation. She was serving her family. She was basically doing that. Today, the young people don't want to do those things. They say, no, when, when the time comes, it will come when I'm having fun. or when I'm not going to stay home and serve my family, or help my mother, or help my father, or, or whatever. But this beautiful example of God showing his um, wisdom, that Rebecca found her husband while she was doing her everyday duties, her current obligations and responsibilities, and I wrote here, particularly the serving of others. And you might say, oh, my child does not serve others well. That's because a lot of times you have not shown the example to serve others. Children learn from example. And the way you learn from it, the way they learn is that you become uh, an example. Like, for example, when you hear women who they go, I can't stand cooking, children will hear that. Or men that say, oh, do I have to, you know, fix the lock over there? Oh, I can't be bothered. You know, children... He things like that. Little things like that gives them a very bad attitude towards duty, doing their duties. And that's why a lot of children don't want to do duties. It really bothers me when I go to a house when you see young kids and it doesn't matter, even six-year-olds, six and seven, and they just play and play and play and play and play and play all day. How much can they play? And yet they don't help at all. They can do little things, pick a few crumbs up, and you hear people, they say to me, oh, my daughter can't even fry eggs. You know, a little bit of oil goes on them and they get scared. But the thing is that, you know, you've got to train them. You've got to help them. You play and play and play and play and play. You know, then, then you... Uh, and I've got one family that the, the father's telling me that one of their children, who's around eight or nine or something like that, just, it's like you just will not do anything. 
she will not do anything. Because why? Because she was the youngest, she was spoilt, and therefore now it's really, really hard for her to do any work. Now, if someone asks me in the future, someone says, oh, Father, you know, you know that person, that man, what's his name, Peter, say, um, he's got a daughter and, um, you know, I want to marry her, but I wanna, I'm hoping that she will be, you know, that she can actually do work, and as I believe I do work, he'll say. I go, okay, and who, who are you thinking about? Oh, that person's daughter over there. I go, scrap it. <laughs> um, if that's what you want and you want to marry her, don't do it because you're not going to get it and at the end you're going to have a lot of problems if that's what you want, if that's your expectation, and vice versa. Don't think it's the person has to, the male has to do work too. Don't think it's just a thing that only women do work and that's silly. Um, so God found her future husband while she was carrying out her daily responsibilities. Her tasks were mundane, one can say perhaps boring. She was only getting water from the well, but that was her responsibility, and she did it with joy. And within that, God blessed and gave her the husband that was for her. And I wrote here, the heart. when we're choosing a spouse, we have to be careful because our heart, as I mentioned before, can be deceiving. Some people's heart, you know, they say, oh, my heart, I feel when I, when I look at that person, my heart's, you know, jumping around. Well, there could be two reasons. One, it could be just passion, or it could be that you've got maybe a heart problem, <laughs> and you should get it checked out. But the point is that um, all because the heart jumps, it doesn't mean that that person's for you. I remember once, I think I've mentioned to you, that I was doing some casual work, as I said, I did, I, and as a teacher, I did part um, casual, but also did permanent. But once I was doing casual, when you're casual, they don't take any notice of you. You know, you, you, all of you know that, that have been students, because they don't know you. Just go to a school for the first time, to, 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 to them, you're nothing but a doormat. But anyway, so you're in there, and I was, uh, it was a group of, um, group of kids there, and then all of a sudden, this uh, year eight. And all of a sudden, this computer technician came, right? Someone that looked like um, Brad Pitt when he was younger, something like that. It was a rock, like a, look, look like a model anyway. And he walks in with his bag, and then these girls in there began to make all types of noises, um, really unbecoming, most of them, anyway. But that's how they believe that they're going to base their way of finding someone in the future by having those type of feelings but when you're being brought up by parents who care the parents should teach their children virtue in themselves but also to teach them to look for virtue in others and all because someone looks good looking or etc it's not a condition actually St. John Chrysostom says in particular with women he says, that, he says to men, don't marry a good-looking woman. Interesting. And as I said last time, a lot of women um, are obsessed about being good-looking to the point that, they, that their faces, it's like you're buying a car which is full of um, bog, you know, I don't know if some of you know, but some cars, you can't tell, but they've had smashes. It's all putty everywhere, right? And that's the same as some women's faces. They actually have got... Um, a silicon uh, implant here, and then they've got Botox here to make 
this part bigger and this small and that bigger and they cut part of their chins off and then they saw their noses off and then so and then they say I'm beautiful but the point is that it's not you that's not you and that's not including their hair and then their nails and then their eye. and men are doing this too but and they and then women look at these magazines they go oh, look look at that beautiful girl on there and say, but the thing is it's not even her it's an, it's a computer image but people actually believe that it's the person that's why I used to couldn't understand that if I ever did see a celebrity sometime somewhere, I don't know, you might have went to a shopping centre when I was young, and I saw someone that used to be on TV, and I go, that person looks different. That person's actually got blemishes and pimples and this and that, but when they're on TV, they know. Well, obviously, because they've got about that much of foundation on their faces, and you cannot, but that's not natural. That's not the person. Christian women and men, but let's look at the women, Christian women who don't wear makeup, Christian women who just have virtue, as I've said in other talks, even the pagans of the first three centuries were jealous of Christian women because of their purity of their soul, which radiates from their faces, from their eyes. They don't need false eyelashes. They don't need lipstick. They don't need rouge. They don't need all these other things because it, it radiates. And a lot of worldly men who may have had a, um, this obsession about marrying someone like that, later on they say, oh, I, just, I just want to marry someone who is simple, someone who's got um, beauty that maybe they can't describe it properly, but when I try to say them, you mean beauty from a virtuous soul from within. He goes, yes, these externals are dry. These externals are worthless. Okay, we're going to have a um, break. Okay, you go. I've read that when a husband or wife dies, the pain can be, the pain of losing that person can be more than losing a child because of the fact that, remember we said that when a man and woman are joined, they become one flesh and that's really a strong bond. So therefore, when the person dies, even though they you know, are separated in that sense, however, they are still spiritually united and the person that's left waits to join that person in the next life. Even though they won't be married in the next life, but they still want to enjoy heaven together. But not as a married couple anymore, but as, a, um, as people that were together. You know what I mean? So they, there are similarities in those weddings. You know, the death was part and this, and that the, um, the man is the head of the family, they do say things like that, but women get mixed up and they don't understand what that means. And um, when, 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 when Christ says that man is the head of the wife, it means that that man has so much love for that woman that he's willing to die for her. And that um, he is willing to suffer everything for her and that he will 
take care of her, etc. And because we don't have many examples of good marriages these days, it's hard to understand the concept of that. Because a lot of marriages are tragic, they've got no examples. So that's minimal examples, if at all, especially in Western culture. But in you know Russia and Greece, there are, I've seen some excellent examples of marriages. That's why it's good for us to read, and that's why next month I'm going to be reading the life of Saint a Saints Adrian and Natalia, which is, and I, the pamphlet says, an excellent example of a married couple. The man in a marriage is, if you read St. John Chrysostom's um, writings, which everyone should get this book, it's a little bit hard, but St. John Chrysostom speaks a lot about the man's responsibility in the marriage and little about the woman. In other words, the man is the main, the main person in the marriage because, because he's the head and because he has to be taken care of the family and the woman in return, seeing that love that the man has, she then gives back to him obedience, honour, etc. It's not like people say, I'm, gonna, I'm the man and I want you to be obedient to me. It doesn't work like that. A woman is obedient to the man because the man loves the woman. A woman honours the man because the man takes care of everything. The whole is, is responsible for the family. Like the priest is responsible for the parish, the bishop is responsible for the diocese, the headmaster or headmistress, well, I don't know what they call them now because it's this sexist language, but anyway, the principal is responsible for the whole school, the head teachers are responsible for their staff of the departments, and doctors the same, etc., etc. Everywhere there is that, that responsibility. The man is the head because he's responsible for the whole family. And nothing is worse than a man that does not take care of his family. And St. Paul actually says there that, they are not, that they're worse than pagans if they do not take care of their family. And St. John Chrysostom says it doesn't mean when, when we say that a man is worse than St. Paul says a man is worse than a pagan if he doesn't take care of his family. It doesn't mean if he doesn't feed his children. It doesn't mean if he doesn't clothe his children. It actually means that if the man does not take care of his family spiritually, he doesn't bring up his children spiritually, he doesn't take care of his wife for the, his wife's salvation, for his wife's well-being, then that man is worse than a pagan. There's a lot of emphasis on the man, less emphasis on the woman. Why? Because the woman is inferior. No. Because, as the Holy Father say at the back, as you, if you read it, they say, why didn't God make man and woman equal in the sense of uh, power? In, um, what's that word called? Um, authority. Why didn't he make man and woman? Because there will be continual fights. There has to be one. In the army, one. And that person leads. In the church, we have the bishop. In the parish, we have the priest. You know, in the you know in in the schools there we have this. You can't have everyone being equal. Saint Nikolai, um, a Serbian saint, he says that equality. This thing about equality is actually does not serve good for mankind. 
We can't have everyone to be equal, like communism said, everyone to be on the same level. We can't have everyone to be, to have the same amount of money. We need the poor, the poor need the rich, the rich need the poor. Remember we have the examples of um, when rich people used to go into the desert to speak to the Holy Fathers and get their blessing, they'd take a lot of money and they'd say to the Holy Fathers, please take this as the nation. They go, I don't want it. I left the world, I have no interest in your money. And they go, please, please, please for me, take this money, take this money. And then the spiritual father, the Holy Fathers, might take a couple of coins. Not that he wanted it, because he felt sorry for the rich man, because he knows that by accepting it, that the rich man will receive a reward. See, there's no this thing about equality. Um, and even St. Paul, where he says slaves, okay, some people are slaves in, in, in his days. And they're not equal in the sense of, you know, that type of thing. And, but... Um, all because you're a slave, it doesn't mean that you can't be leading a life in Christ. All because you're a woman and you're supposed to be under the man in the sense of that thing, but you're still equal as human beings. But there has to be one person who is in charge. You can't have two, you know, too many cooks for the broth. But a good man, a humble man, will ask advice of his wife. And a lot of great men had very, very good wives who helped them in their, you know, in their lives. Saint, um, again, St. John Chrysostom says that women have their femininity, they have their sexuality. In other words, they've got this way of getting what they want, when they want. Um, and St. John Chrysostom says they should use that, instead of manipulating their husbands using their femininity to what other are for stupidities, why don't they use that influence to influence their husband to make proper decisions, to be, you know, in, in a way, um, uh, a better man? Because a lot of, um, there's a, what, what, what we call complementary. A man on his own cannot survive, but he needs the woman to complement him. Even though he's the head, it doesn't mean that he's superior. If a man has that type of attitude with his wife, then that is going to be a disgusting marriage. The man is head in authority, yes, but as human beings, it's still equal, but there has to be the last word. If you read the Holy Fathers there in the back, they actually say, very simple, there has to be at the end, one person's going to make decisions. But the woman can use her tenderness, her softness, her her way that she's got to influence a man to good, but she can also influence a man to destruction. So, that's that. Now, practicing for marriage while single. The first thing, practice intimacy, right? It says here that before you get married, you have to have already practiced intimacy, being close to people, as I said last time, being close to your family, and being close to your friends, your spiritual friends. Um, relating to women, as you're a man, relating to women as you would, you know, you have to look at women as your mother, as your sister, not as a sexual object. And that's unfortunate people like that. And the same with women. They have to relate, when they're not ready for marriage, they have to relate to their, to the, to males as they would their father, their brothers, etc. 
as people who are brothers in Christ, not as sexual objects. That's wrong. God has given us families so that we can learn how to relate, how to share, and how to serve others. Now, I must say that there are a lot of families which are dysfunctional, and therefore people can't practice that within their family because their family life is really bad. However, you can still practice that with others in the parish, in the community, with other people. Obviously, if your family is okay, then you should practice it with them. They help you to relate to your family if you get married. If you're always in your room, if you're always playing on the computer, if you don't even talk to your parents, if you don't care about anything that goes on in the house, you don't even care about whether there's enough food, whether there's enough money, whether there's anything like that, you're going to do the same when you get married. Right? Don't think it's going to change. Therefore, if you cannot relate to those around you as a single person, then you will not be able to develop in the marriage in the areas of communication, intimacy, and even spiritual. Now, the second thing to look for, to, to, for us to, to develop as single people, meaning yourselves, practice seeking God with others. By the way, back on the other one, what happens if we didn't prepare ourselves? We didn't practice intimacy. What happens if we were quite, you know, antisocial in a lot of ways, or we just didn't know, and then we get married. That's why people, you see a lot of people become frustrated when they're married, because they, they say, oh, my wife doesn't understand me, or my husband doesn't understand me, and they become angry and scream and have breakdowns. Why? Because there's a lack of communication, either from the person themselves or from their spouse as well. And when that happens, as I said, it's difficult. What do we do? We pray to God and start to practice through spiritual struggle, intimacy with that person. Just try asking God and say, oh, I can't, I find it really hard to say a nice word to my wife, for example. Well, pray to God. I just can't um, say a nice word to my husband. I just can't, I don't feel for him or whatever. Then you pray and ask God to give you that ability and you make an effort. Don't just pray and sit, but you make an effort. And when you fail... I remember someone said to me, oh, when I pray, when the person, um, well, one example, I'll, I'll even use myself. When I first came to the um, church, I was around 22, I think, I wasn't in the church when younger, and I remember I read that you should pray for your parents. So I began to try and pray, and I nearly vomited. Why? Because there was no proper intimacy with the parents as I grew up, because I grew up worldly, and it was difficult to pray for the person. If you can't pray for a person, that means that you've got problems. If you can't pray for your wife, as you're going to get the prayers later on, a prayer for a spouse, or you can't pray for your husband, that means that there's problems there. So what do you do? You ask God and say, I have, haven't got it, please help me, and then you make efforts, little efforts. Even if you feel that you're going to burst, you still make an effort to force yourself some women find it even hard to make a cup of tea for their husband. Some men find it even hard to speak to their wives and say, how do you feel today? How are you? Are you tired? They can't do it a lot of times. Or, or if you can't, then go to your wife and say, how are you today, even if you don't feel it, and asking God to help. And as time goes on, slowly, slowly, you will begin to acquire it. Practicing seeking God with others. 
Many go, many go to church, many even confess, commune, read books, pray, but you know they can't relate spiritually to other people. That's really interesting. I've had groups before where I've actually had a, a group of people and I noticed that the people would be going to church, go to monasteries, commune, read, but when they get together, you know, they ha 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 he he. They just they can't actually talk spiritual things, and just all the time. And I noticed that here last time too. Just all the time, just all um, this uh, uh, laughter and stupidity and talking about everything and everything. But they can't. They feel funny to speak about spiritual things. What happens then is if you get married, you're going to find it hard to talk about spiritual things with your with your wife or husband. So I've noticed that there are married couples who cannot speak about spiritual matters to each other. There are best friends in the church that cannot speak about spiritual matters together. Your children that will notice the parents not speaking spiritual themselves. I used to notice some children, and I used to try and speak to them on, on a spiritual, like, say, but they just looked at you funny. I go, why doesn't that child have been brought up in the church from young? Why doesn't that child can't even speak about anything of the church. So they go to church, but they don't speak. And I realise because the parents don't speak. This can be even homeschooled kids. It doesn't have to be for the TV. We might say, oh, they're ruined from the TV. These are some, I've noticed these kids, even homeschooled kids, that kids that weren't even, haven't even watched TV, that they can't even speak on a spiritual level because their parents don't speak about spiritual things. That's really very bad. So therefore, as a single person... You must develop that with your family, if they believe. Sometimes they don't. But at least with those who you go to church with. Try to have friends that go to church. And not everything to be ha and he and ho and ha and this and that continually. And nothing spiritual. That's really bad when you see a married couple that can't even speak. There's other married couples that they can speak spiritual matters. The wife will say, I'm having this problem. The husband says, what's wrong? And then, oh, well, you know, um, God will help you, or I'll pray for you, or he's having trouble. And the wife says, I noticed that something's wrong. What's wrong? As I feel this, I feel that goes well. You know, talk about it. You know, things like that. It's very nice. They can read things together. They'll read the spiritual books together. Together. Pray together. Some married couples will not even pray together. And if the others, they do, it's like, I don't know, it's like um, those columns holding up the Parthenon. Just two stiff things, sitting there and doing their prayer and having no spiritual bond with each other at all. They've missed their mark. They should go and get a job ever in Athens. Um, so, I think some of those ones over there, they're deteriorating, so they might have a very good job there for another thousand years. Example, praying together, studying the Bible together, opening up about spiritual struggles. This should be with friends, family, if their family can be like that, your wife, husband, etc. Uh, now, as I said, there might be a couple who never, they weren't, they weren't spiritual, they were worldly. They were orthodox, but they didn't believe when they properly, they got married in the church, but they, didn't, they weren't spiritual. All of a sudden, one or both change. If they both change, suddenly they've found that they, they can't speak to each other because they've never actually 
related to each other in a spiritual way and either have they related to anyone in a spiritual way. They've never had friends before on a spiritual level. That couple would find it really hard, but with God, all things are possible. Like I said before about intimacy, you must ask God, pray and ask him, please help me to relate to my wife. That's why those prayers are there. Please help me to be united with my wife, with my husband, spiritually. When you force yourself like that, blessed. If you don't do that, then it's going to be a really, really horrible marriage. And I have to say that even worldly people, people that don't even go to church, actually have some more intimacy, maybe not on a spiritual level, or maybe even a little bit, they might think about, okay, they might talk about some concerns, they might talk about global warming, they might think about other things, I don't know, they talk. Worldly people, but yet people in the church find it difficult. And that's because there's a lot of emotional baggage from when they were young, just a lot of problems. If you can do it while you're single, it's the best. I actually remember um, in monasteries, for example, when some monks would say to people or nuns, they say, if you're going to become a monk or a nun, try and learn whatever you can before you come to the monastery. Because once you get in the monastery, there's no time. The same with married people. Before you get married, learn spiritual things. Learn even worldly things, which we're going to go on later on. If you're a person that your father didn't do anything, and you watched your father all your life, you couldn't even, the whole house was falling apart, and you, that's it, then go to Bunnings and go and do a course on home maintenance or something before you get married. It's a hardware place. And it's really bad when, when spouses shut each other off, you know, like they don't open up to each other, and then the other person, the other spouse looks at the person and says there's something wrong with him, for example. He's closed up and she tries to make him open up, but they can't because of his problems when he was young. He didn't have no one to open up to before. Then the wife, in that case, would have to pray for God to help her, to give her patience and to enlighten her husband. That's why it's important to learn prayer before you get married. So that when problems occur in the marriage, straight away you can grab at prayer or you can grab at knowledge. You don't, you know, it's like, as I said, you go to you know, Iraq or something like that, or Iraq as the, husband, as the Americans say, they go to um, over there and they haven't been trained. They haven't been trained. And all of a sudden they've been attacked. And they go to hold the gun and they don't even know how to hold it. They don't even know where the trigger is. They don't even know how to load it. That person's dead. It's the same as in the spiritual, in, in, in the marriage. The people need to be trained beforehand. Obviously, you can, it, you know, some soldiers that haven't been trained, some actually learn very quickly because, you know, that. But in general, then you're not trained, you've got a lot of trouble. The same as the marriage. If you're not trained beforehand, you're going to have a lot of problems. As soon as problems occur in the marriage, you have to learn to pray. If you haven't learned, what's going to happen? It's going to be really, really hard. And when you're getting, you know, bombarded in the marriage, because marriage is like, I remember when someone said to me, they got married and everything was all right, and they had their first child, and then the screaming, and then the nappies, and then the whole thing. It was so overbearing for that person that he began to have a kind of resentment towards his child. Um, he began to hate the child. And women also can have the same thing. 
where that's what this, you know, that can become so um, devastated from the experience of, of, ch of children that they can begin to really hate that child. And I've noticed women, in a lot of couples, but the women in particular, they seem to have a bit of negativity towards, this is not a formula, in general I've noticed that, that they have a pretty, uh, negativity towards their first child because the first child was the, whoa, you know, what, what's, what's, what is this? You know, waking up and this, and they become really negative towards their child. And usually the second one, they might get a bit better. It's always better to be prepared beforehand. So then we go to number three, practice financial responsibility. As I said before, people need to learn how to manage their finances. And as I said today, when kids or young people have 10 credit cards and they're maxed out and they've got, uh, you know, trying to go around and trying to get them to, um, what do you call it, to re redo them again, to make them put together and all this type of stuff, that spirit goes over into the marriage. And this thing about um, budgeting, they don't know. People don't know how to save. Um, they don't even know how to give alms to the poor, which is extremely important for a, a single person, but very important for a married person. The more we give to the poor, the more God gives grace to the family. And if people haven't learned that from young, but they only learned to buy stuff for themselves and only spent money on themselves, then they're not going to be able to do it very well when they get married. Um, so I said here, people cannot control their money. We've said all that. And those that live at home. Oh, this is now really a bad topic. There are children who work, who live at home, who don't give a cent to their parents. And the, some parents are stupid enough to say, I don't want anything. They actually say, I don't want anything. You know, and then, no, no, you keep the money and you go and spend it on drugs or you go and spend it on alcohol, you go and spend it on makeup or you go and spend it on clothes or cars or videos or whatever, but don't give us any money. And there are even parents or parent who could be on the pension that only get a couple of hundred dollars a week and the child could be bringing in five, six hundred dollars a week, not one cent. He spends it for himself and she or he or both of them have to make do with their pensions to take, to actually buy food for him and pay the bills. Those parents are preparing their children for the biggest disaster completely. That is the worst. And I, you know, I know because we as Greeks, um, you know, to be, um, I don't want to be racist, but I'm just telling you how it was when we were younger. We used to actually laugh when we were younger. We used to laugh um, because our parents were the same. They never, didn't take a cent. And we used to make fun of the more the Anglo-Saxon, the Australians, and say, oh, look at them. They've got to pay money to their parents, ha, 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 and look at them, and they go and live on their own at 17, and ha, 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 and this and that. We used to make fun of them. But later on now, as an older person, I can actually, especially now in the, as a priest, I can see that, no, those people were right to actually say to their children, you stay here, you're going to pay part of the water bill, 
Okay, if you're going to use that toilet and flush it, you've got to pay part of the water bill. You've got to pay part of the gas bill if you've got it, pay the electricity, and you're going to pay for the food, etc., etc., to teach responsibility. Not to wait for the person to get married, and all of a sudden he's got to pay this, and they're not used to it at all, completely. Some people find it excruciating to even spend money on their own children. Some people find it excruciating to even share their money with their wives or with their husband because they never shared before. It was mine. You know, like the little children when they're young, mine, mine. Oh, that's how they are. That's how they are. It's my money. And that causes, obviously, divorces, etc. And as I said before, the parents are at fault there one million percent. One million percent. They are anyway become too disturbed now the next one practice parenthood now that sounds stupid how are you going to practice parenthood as a single person yes as a single person you have to practice parenthood and what does that mean well becoming a good father or mother starts when we're single how do we do that by associating with those who are good parents hopefully our own hopefully our own parents and if not then associate with others in the parish or cousins or sisters or someone else. Make sure you have contact with people that have children so that you can learn. That's why large families were fantastic in the old days. You got seven, eight children. The older ones take care of the younger ones. Now, if the younger ones who are they going to take care of when they're, if they're the youngest? Well, they've got to go and find something. Well, what happens is a lot of times in those days is that, it still exists, is that the younger ones help the older ones who used to take care of them. Now they help them with their children. Because if there's a 20-year gap and this person up here is married, then the younger one, when it grows up, can start helping their sister or their brother with their children. That's why large families, there was advantages in those days. And in Greece, of course, and in Russia, there's still people that have a lot large families. Like in Greece, there's a magazine called Polytechnic, which means a lot of children. And you see in there beautiful pictures of um, families with 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 children. Of course, it doesn't mean we'll come to that another time about having a lot of, fam a lot of children. Some people can't because of weakness, etc., like psychological weakness. But in general, it is, a, it is good to have large families. So, big families are excellent because it gives the opportunity for older children to take care of their younger siblings. Changing nappies. What's worse than you see at the, at the hospitals that they have to have groups, courses of women of how to change nappies, how to, you know, how to do all these things, which is very strange. You say, well, why? Well, because they don't see it. When you only have two kids, well, what, and, you, and they're both nearly close to the same age, you're not going to obviously change your sibling's nappy because he's the same age as you. So, therefore, you're going to have a lot of problems later on. But I know children that were older who used to change their nappies of their younger brothers and sisters. That's, 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 um, that's good. Even as, even as um, I mean, even there are cases where I know where people that were as young as eight, some children, were helping in some ways bringing up their younger children. There's an example now of a family, they've got a new child, and then the older children, that might be 8, 9, 10, 11, they're learning. 
They're learning what? I've got, I went through a list here. They learn even to do a bit of feeding. That's good. Um, they learn as well and participate, well, they should be, even if you don't have younger kids, but washing clothes. There should be chores that you should learn. Cooking, cleaning, minding the children, you know, the mother, you know, when a mother's on her own and she's got to all the time have her mind on the children, that's really nerve-wracking. That's why a lot of women have breakdowns because they haven't got support. But when they've got older brothers and sisters in the family, that woman, she can say, mind the child, be careful it doesn't fall down, be careful it doesn't trip, be careful this, be careful that. These are all important things. Calming the babies. Just, you know, the mother's cooking. Just touch the child, just pat it a bit, and it will calm down. Learn those things. Um, uh, playing with them. Even little, the older children, playing with the little children. If you haven't, as I said, if you haven't got younger, find someone else that has children. Now, one word of advice. You do have to be careful because of today people are emotionally and sexually warped that you can have a problem where um, you might have children and someone says, oh, I'd like to help a bit this that, and you don't know that person might have problems. And remember as well, it's been on the TV a lot lately, that there is a lot of cases of um, child molesting of child molesting from children, not like children that are 10 and 9 are molesting younger children. So you've got to be very careful, and especially when they're older, you've got to be careful with your children that but in general we still have to um, uh, as single people try you know with your sister's children and your cousin's children and by doing that you're helping them alleviating their pressure and stopping these depressions and breakdowns etc because women need support a lot and men have to realize that that work seven days a week and leave the woman with the children and that's why a lot of women prefer to go and work they go, oh, I want to work because of my career. Yeah, that's true, but most of the time they want to get away because they can't be at home with the children. One, they're not used to it, or and they are um, just tired. It's just really hard when they've got no support. Remember in the villages in Russia, Russia, Serbia, this and that, you know, you've got, I've been to the village, my mother's village, you've got um, the woman, she comes home from and has a baby, and she's there. And I noticed that she was just there. That's it. All she did was stay with the baby. Her mother or her sisters or others did the cooking or took care of the other children, etc. That's how it is. Women should have the maximum help, especially for the few months of their, when they have the baby. Women now today, they come home and straight away they're into this whole thing of... Um, cooking, cleaning, taking care of that baby, doing this, doing that, taking care of the other children. And that's why, because they haven't got that close-knit family anymore, support, it is difficult, and that's why priests have to be very careful not to push people to have too many children, because today people a lot of times can't take it psychologically and they're not in a position where they're getting help. Now some people say, oh, but when you've got trust in God, then everything will work out. You've got to be discerning exactly situations and what's happening. When I first became a priest, I went to Greece, to a town. And the priest invited me and says, come and serve the next day. I went there. And later on, as well, he said, come back to my place now to have something to eat. And on the way back, he mentioned to me something like, um, sometimes it's better for people not to have children. 
And me as a young priest, to myself, I go, how can he speak like that? And then I actually got quite offended with him that he actually said that. But it didn't take long after a couple of years doing work as a priest and doing pastoral and seeing the situation. Because when you stand back, you're the judge. You judge everyone because you're not in it. You know, when you're not in it, you don't know. When I was younger, I could have said, oh, look at the priest. He does this and does that. But when you become a priest and then you see the difficulty, then you shut your mouth. It's the same as people that are single. They go, oh, that's not a good mother and that's not a good father. And that's not that. But when you get into the... Um, into the situation and you see how hard it is and then you begin to shut your mouth so it's the same here yes I did judge the person because I said well I don't know what he's talking about but later on I realized that some people are so psychologically weak some people are very emotionally on edge they're really 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 bad you know in, in that sense you push them to have children it can cause them to have major breakdowns and catastrophes even for the children. So I understand now what he says. If you can't bring up children at all because of your situation, which we read last month, if you've got certain psychological problems, certain emotional problems, certain physical sicknesses, like how can a woman have children? It's very hard if she's sick. She can't even hardly do anything. How's she going to bring up the children? So you've got to look at things. You're not just um, in fairy floss land and thinking that... Um, Oh, if we have trust in God, we have trust in God. People say that a lot. Have faith in God and everything will come about. Yeah, Mary of Egypt went into the desert with some seeds of, I don't know what they were, some wheat or something, and that's all. That's what she had. What does that mean? We're going to go into the desert, into the Nullarbor Plains out there in Australia and, and say I'm going to be like Mary of Egypt. That was an exception. So a lot of breakdowns occur because of all this, postnatal depression, anxiety, how many problems could be solved by people helping each other, etc. But preparing for marriage, you must practice being a parent to some extent beforehand. Don't just throw yourself in it because it's going to be really a surprise. Now, practice practical life skills. What does that mean? People in general do not, I think I've mentioned it already, do not have do not even know how to shop. They don't know how to plan menus. A lot of people don't know how to cook. A lot of people don't even know how to do household work. A lot of people don't even know how to sew. Some, you know, women in particular. Men can't even take out the garbage, as I said. You know, people that grass, can't even cut the grass. You go to some people's houses, it's like that. You know, you think you're in the, some, um, in Africa with the grasslands. You, these, um, people can't change washers. People, there's men that don't even know how to change light globes. And you know that a lot of women, especially if they're single, or some of them even if they're married, they go and look up the um, yellow pages and rent a, um, rent a hubby. And then the person comes out and does all those things because your, your own hubby can't do it, or you, the hubby's gone. Or, then there's and a joke, which I said, which I wrote here, you can, maybe you can also have a new service, rent a wifey, because some wifeys can't do anything at all. They cannot take care of certain things. So it's good rent a hobby, you know, some people need that. But I've never seen in the white in the pages, the yellow pages, rent a wifey as yet. But I tell you, if someone's listening, they might have them they'll get good business. <laughs> but it is true that people cannot perform their duties in the marriage, and that's because they didn't practice 
from when they were single. It is important as single people to do all these things. And then, you know, some people say, oh, if we don't, some young people say to me, if we don't go out to discos, or if we don't go out here, if we don't go there, if we don't go here and there, whatever, all these enjoyments, what are we going to do in our life? But there's a lot of things to do. I just went through them. There's so much you can do, which are actually fulfilling. I mean, I, I was a teenager once. I remember we used to go down to the Hoyts, down to the cinema, and watch a movie. After being bored to death there, then we said, what are we going to do now? Oh, let's go and eat. So then we go to McDonald's. Then after that, we eat that there. And then after that, we leave there and we say, what are we going to do now? When are we going to have coffee? So we go and have coffee. And after that, I mean, it was quite a, a very boring existence. And a lot of people today are the same. I was once young. Some of you are young now. Some of you were young the same. But it is, um, these things are not fulfilling. And even the worldly people themselves are beginning to realise it just doesn't fulfil the person. What fills our souls is Christ. And what does Christ want us to do? He wants us to lead a spiritual life. And how do we lead a spiritual life? Does it mean we pray only? Does it mean we go to church only? Is that what spiritual life means? And people are saying, well, I'm quite surprised you're going through all these things I've never heard before. Look, par practice parenthood and practice financial responsibility, and practice seeking God with others. That's a bit spiritual. Practice intimacy. People say, I've never heard of these things before. That's because, in general, in churches, they speak theory. Christianity is practical. Orthodoxy is practical. If you hear a priest speaking theoretically, then he's not doing the job. St. John Chrysostom was practical. There are needs, of course, of theological things, which some... Great saints wrote theological things on dogmas and other things. That's, okay. that's, got their, that's got their place. People in the world need practical. And these things are practical. And that's why a lot of you are surprised and saying, well, I've never really thought that the church gets involved in nappies and gets involved with, you know, minding children. He's like, yes, because that's the problem later on when married people come to the priest and they say, you know, my husband... He won't even help me do this. He won't even do that. He just sits there. Or the, or, the woman, or the man says, my wife doesn't do this and doesn't do that. I had one, and the other day I had a case where someone said to me, um, I just, you know, like, I knew that my wife had problems before I got married and I said, oh, it doesn't matter because love is the most important thing and I want to marry her. And he goes, but now I'm starting to see that just, she just can't do anything. And it's starting to, he's going to be, he has to go through martyrdom. And we wrote there about the practical life skills. I would even say, I mean, some people might say, oh, how stupid. But as I said before, learn before you get married even to sew, even to cook, even all the things. You can work woodwork, you can learn house maintenance, you can learn about computers, whatever you have to do to help you in your life, in your jobs, but also in your everyday life. People come to the marriage and they go, I am an engineer, or I am a computer person, or I am a teacher, or I'm a nurse. Okay, that's good. Do you know how to cook? No, I don't know how to cook. Do you know how to do this? I don't know how to do that. I can't do any of that. There was a tape that I heard from an American priest. It was a good tape on marriage. But one part there which I found I didn't agree with, where he, I think I've said this before, where he was talking about how he met his wife. 
and he liked this person and they, they, they got together, that he said to her, I want to marry you, and she says, but I, you know, I can't do things, I can't even take care of a house. And he made a joke and people laughed, but I didn't, I didn't agree with the joke, which is, he said to her, can you vacuum? And she said, yes, I can vacuum. He goes, well, that's all you need to know. That, that no way. As you've noticed from the talk here, that even something like taking out the garbage can be the cause of a divorce because when you might say, well, how can not taking out the garbage be a cause of a divorce? Well, if it's not a cause of a divorce, it'd be a cause of a death because that garbage begins to stink and it spreads diseases. So if a woman's at home and she can't take the garbage out because she might be living in a unit and there's all these stairs and she's got kids, and then the garbage's been there for about six, seven days, right? So that's one, one way of separating. And the other way is that the person just can't cope with it anymore and they might just say, I can't do it, even though obviously Christian way we say you have to endure. I mean, you can always throw it off the balcony, but that is um, not really right. And as well, these little things like that, yes, it is. How, how many women say to me, oh, just this, you know, oh, see that life globe there? I've asked my husband for three years to change that. Um, then another woman says to me, see the PowerPoint in the kitchen hasn't been changed. I go, well... You know, it is expensive, if you, especially if you've got financial problems, to get an electrician to fix that PowerPoint could cost $100, you know, for them to come out. And um, she goes, yeah, but my husband's an electrician. <laughs> and that's true, that tradespeople a lot of times don't take care of their own houses. Um, another thing which I want to say here is that a lot of young people and older people when you're single, you go through a lot of problems with lust, sexual temptations. And uh, we know from the lives of saints that they, um, they also battled, because they weren't married, obviously, that's why the, the monks and nuns, they went through battles of temptations with lust. And young people, as they're, as they're doing their spiritual life, some of them will go through that. And we notice that the spiritual... Uh, that a lot of the spiritual fathers, the holy elders, would battle it. Some used to, used to fast. Some would do a lot of prayer. Some would really wear out their bodies. But I noticed one thing when you read the holy fathers is that there was always one thing which was the, one of the best ways of killing the passion of lust a lot of times within ourselves, which is serving others. And what I said before, right through this talk, is how important it is as a single person, as parents to teach your children as well, how to serve others. What's Christ's example? Serving others. He washed the feet of his disciples. That was to show the importance that even though he was God and man, he washed the feet. Whoever wants to be first, let him be a servant to all. And this is not practice, and that's why there's these sexual passions are really wild, as I said last time, that when you're involved in pleasures and enjoyments and money and collecting things all the time and all these distractions, they promote sexual problems. 
But one of the best remedies, apart from fasting and all these things which are good, one of the best remedies for sexual lust, which also should be practised by married people because they can't indulge in these things whenever they want. There's also periods of fasting and that, so they haven't got a free ticket. But one of the best ways is when you serve others. Women serve their children, help their children. Men to serve their wives, to help their wives. That's what I mean. You say, oh, the man is the head. Yes, but as Christ said, even though that I am God, I served others. And the man can say, even though I'm the head of the family, because that's how God ordained it, I am the head, but yet, in a way, who is the servant? The woman or the man? And if we like the example, if Christ is the head of the church, and Christ gave himself to die for the church, Christ was a servant to the people, then the man really, in reality, is a servant and a full-on servant to his wife. But that's where people get mixed up. They don't understand how it all works. But I'm sure as you read on and we listen to a bit more, you'll understand. The man is the head, but he's continually serving his family, taking care of his family, and be willing to die for his wife, etc. And that's the teaching of the church. So when we feminists say, why should the man be the head? And why should the man be in charge? And the answer is simple and say, but you get the better deal because you are being taken care of and you have the man bearing the pressure of everything. The women can say, or something like, oh, he's the head and he thinks himself smart because he's on top of me and this and that. No, but that man has all this pressure on him if he's the proper man and he's really taking care of his family all the pressure is on him. Not just to make money, not just to pay the bills, everything, everything is on him. And on the woman as well, but not the same as that who is in charge. Oh, the bishop, some people say, oh, the bishop, and he stands there and he blesses with both hands and who does he think he is? And say, who is he? He's the person who has the whole diocese on his back that the man really thinks himself smart because he's on top. If he's on top properly, then yes, he's on top with a big burden, a big responsibility, a big stress, and the woman should support her husband in that, not put him down continually, but supporting him. And I don't mean some men can say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm like that, I work all the time, and that's it. That's not what I mean. I mean being responsible, taking care of your wife in everything. In everything. I speak to men a lot of times. I go, did you ask your wife what happened here? No. Did you ask your wife how she feels? No. Did you ask your wife how she's going, you know, that she's had the baby? No. Have you asked? Nothing. If that person's the head, I don't know. Because that person is not proper as the head of the family and the head of his wife. Okay. Any questions on what we've said? Yes? Yes. Okay, there are the levels. Like here, for example, there's, there's people mix. It's what's called friendship. That's the first level. Not every friendship with the opposite sex has to lead to a relationship. It's just friends. When you know that you're not ready to get married, then that's as far as it goes. 
friendship, just friendship. Don't get yourselves into temptations of being in situations where you can fall because our emotions are confused and a lot of times we can feel that we love someone or we like someone and it becomes all confusing. We should understand that as spiritual people that when we look at the opposite sex, we look at them as a brother or a sister in Christ. That's first level. Later on, when you have decided and you've gone through that list and realised that, yes, I'm, I've built myself up now, I'm starting to feel that I really want to get married and I want to um, find a wife or a husband. Then we start to look at people more closely, which you may have already noticed some people as friends, as friends, you might have noticed, oh, that guy looks like a very good guy, he's, he's caring, he's this, he's that. You can make observations, but then have to start thinking about marriage and romances when you're not ready. But when you are ready, then you can start saying, um, you're, firstly, you've got to pray. And then we, we, we go on to the next level, which is what's called courting. It's an old-fashioned word, but I, I like that word, which is that um, a person says to himself, I like I want to. I think that girl could be for me, and then he starts to become closer with her, more intimate. That doesn't mean emotional, romantic, and rubbish like that, which is not the right thing. Just closer, closer as friends, closer and becoming to start to speak to the person, examine the person and yourself. What's that person's interests? What's that person's attitude? What's that person's virtues? And you begin to become closer. If after a while you begin to notice I'm not interested, then you break off. You don't have to say to the person that you're getting closer to, I'm, I'm now courting you or I'm interested in marrying you at that stage. It might just be a friendship where you're getting a bit closer and the other person, if they're on the same wavelength, will know what's going on. If one or both of you realise that that person's not for you, then you should just separate without causing problems. Uh, if you, the, the male mostly, if he, that's what it should be, the male begins to notice more and more, now this person I'm really interested in, then he begins to express and say, I am considering to look at the possibility of marriage. What do you think of that? And then the person will say yes or no or whatever. And then as time goes on, um, with prayer, and, and again, don't put yourselves in temptations where you're going to lead to sin. There's no need to have intimacy. There's no need to have physical things. Those things are not necessary. A sack didn't have physical. didn't have to. Virtue. You can look at that from a distance. You don't have to touch. You don't have to get involved in that stuff. You go, oh, I have to know. But to know what? If the person's got bad breath, if the person's got um, um, smooth skin, all these silly things. We look at virtue. All the time, while you're going, you're praying to God. And then, it's also important, sometimes even the priest can say, you know what, I've got a feeling that that girl could be for you. What do you think of that? Priests can get involved. Sometimes the parents can get involved and they say, um, you know, I heard that this fellow is good for you or this girl, whatever. what do you think of that? You can't reject these people. You can't reject the priest. You can't reject your parents. It doesn't mean that you've got to do it, but how do you know that God's not speaking through those people? You have to think about it and pray about it, but never ever agree to a relationship or to go ahead and get engaged or married if you don't want it yourself. There's nothing wrong with getting suggestions of people of saying things like that. 
Then, if it becomes more and more serious, and you begin in your heart to feel it, and you know, and especially others around you can feel it too, um, parents, if they're in the position to be able to tell you their opinion, um, then you can proceed to the next level, which is engagement. In the engagement level, you still have the right to, to break off if you don't want to go ahead. Then after the engagement, which is just exchange of rings, it's not really the formal engagement like it is in the church, which is like half a marriage anyway, but priests don't do that. Now they just do a simple exchange of rings. It's not really the true engagement as it is done in the marriage service. Marriage service is two. It's the formal engagement and then the crowning. There's two parts of the service. In the old days, they used to do the engagement separate. They don't do that anymore because people are so out of it that they separate. And because half the service has been done, the bishop has to grant in a way like a, a bit like a divorce because it's like a half a marriage, the engagement. So what they do now, because they don't trust people, they just exchange rings. And then, as I said, you keep on going. Of course, this all should be done in conjunction with your parents. This should be done in conjunction with friends, spiritual friends who care. This should be done in conjunction with the priest who is praying for you and cares for you. If, he doesn't, if the priest doesn't care for you, well, don't ask. But if he's, the priest shows that he's caring for your soul, prays for you often, then his prayers are very strong. If your parents care for you, then their prayers are very strong. I remember an example of someone who wanted to get married to someone. His priest said, don't do it. Basically, all his friends said, don't do it. His friends said, too. And they went to the bishop, to a bishop. Not been here, it could have been overseas. They went to the bishop. And the bishop sensed, he goes, leave it for a while, because there's just, there's not, something wasn't right about that. And what did they do? They still got married. And what happened at the end? Disaster. It's just like the most, oh, people, I heard that people found that even looking at that couple can make them sick, actually sick. Why? Because those people did not listen and get help from anyone. You might say, well, why should they listen to the priest or why should they listen to their friends? I didn't say they have to listen. Where I disagreed in this case is that they didn't stop and consider what the other person's saying. At least to consider. They rejected everyone. Consider and think to yourself, is this person, if these people care for me, do they care for me? And if they do care for me, how do I know that God's not speaking through them? I don't have to have leaves falling through the, you know, have signs, oh, when the leaf falls and all these silly things. But we get our messages a lot of times where God shows us through parents, through priests, through bishops, through friends, Christian friends, the same as married couples. I've seen couples where um, the woman can say to the man, you know what, I think this, this, and this. She might say something about the husband. And the husband says, no, I don't want to listen to you, and this and that. How does that husband know that God's not enlightening the wife to speak? Because you know what? The relationship of a man and a woman, I've noticed, is so spiritual and so great that a lot of times God speaks to you through the spouse. And if you ignore that, it's like you're not everything but stop and listen when your wife's telling you something or your husband's telling you something. 
How do you know that that person's, that God's not speaking to that? For me, personally, on my experience, without, I'm not going to brag about it, but that's how I have learnt. Even if a young child says to me something, I will stop and think about it. Because I want to know, well, why did that person say that for? I, you know, I know people that reject everything. Whatever they hear, they reject. I'm not like that personally for me. Whatever anyone tells me, I will remember and I will think about it and I will pray about it to try to see, is this some, you know, someone might say to me, oh, when you speak to people, you're rude, for example. Someone might say that. And I say, well, I don't think I'm rude. But how do I know that I'm not, how do I know I'm seeing myself properly? Maybe God is answering my prayers because we should, or everyone should pray, God, show me my secret sins. Show me what's in me that I don't know, that I'm not aware of. If we pray like that, then all of a sudden your wife says something, your husband says something, another priest says something, the bishop says something to me, or, so, or your friend says something to you. How do you know that's not the answer to your prayers? So we shouldn't reject anyone. That couple rejected everyone. And as a result of that, I believe 100% that, that that was not meant to be. That they mucked up and they will suffer for it. So, yes, our friends, Christian friends, friends that care for us is good. Say you're getting close to someone because you're considering marriage, and then your friends can say, you know what, I've noticed that you're not acting proper with that person that you're doing something which doesn't look right. Because you're in the love thing and the passions a bit, you might not notice it. But your friends who care for your soul can say that, and you should listen and go, oh, okay, yep, back off. Because when we're in a situation, a lot of times we don't notice ourselves. But others around us who care for us do notice. So in marriage, it's always good to listen as well to others. At the end, it's your decision and you can do whatever you want, but do not reject, especially the priest who prays for you. I have experienced a number of times marriages where people have said, I'm th oh, this fellow wrote me an email and he said to me that, um, he's from another country, and he goes that he gave his name to some monastery and asked them to pray about a person that though he was thinking of marrying. And then... It just didn't work out. And you might say, well, what's monastics got to do with marriage? A lot. A lot monastics have got to do with marriage. Because monastics, if they're praying for... If monastics are struggling for themselves, which a lot of times they are the more conscious of salvation because they're in the monasteries, if they're praying for themselves, then they also care about others. And when someone comes up and says, I want to marry such and such, or what do you think, or can you pray for me to find someone... They take that seriously and they begin to pray for that person in ways more than what you understand. So monasteries are very powerful in that. Asking prayers, asking prayers from your friends, asking prayers from your parents, etc. And then you go on to marriage. 100% sure that you want that. And with the understanding, like I said in the beginning of the talk, that whatever happens, you will not separate. And if you have that there... If you have salvation as number one, then it will become easier. As for those that are already married and didn't ask, then transfer your pain, transfer your repentance to God, asking him to help you or in your struggles 
with that person. Don't separate. Stay with the person. Don't have this attitude if you find someone else that you'll be better off because second marriages in general don't work. Um, that's why this church says if you want to get married second time, you can, but it's better to remain single if, for example, your, your spouse died or if your spouse has left or they, they left themselves or whatever, it's better to stay single. However, if you want to get married, the church permits it. When you've got that attitude, I'm going to find someone else, it won't work. Make do with what you've got. Don't go away from your cross. If God's given you that cross, don't say to God, no, this cross that you've given me is too heavy for me. This person that I married is a pig or she's really horrible or whatever. I don't want that person. You're telling God that you don't want that person. Fair enough. You say to God, I'm taking the cross off my back. Throw it over there and say, I'm going to go and find someone who's going to love me or whatever. Or the man might say, I'm going to go and find a woman that's going to listen. The woman's going to say, I'm going to find a man that cares about me. And they go away. You have to realize that if you want to get saved, you have to have a cross. A cross means something in your life that you're going to suffer with. A sickness or difficult child or a death or whatever. Something in your life is going to be that's, that you suffer to help you go to heaven. If you threw away that cross, which was this big, and then you went and found someone else, or you'd done something else which is opposite to the cross that you had, then God will give you a cross which is bigger. Maybe double, maybe triple, maybe quadruple, but it's going to be harder than what your first cross was. So in other words, don't think that by throwing away your cross in the marriage, for example, that that means that I'm going to find a lighter cross. You may find a lighter cross if you're not seeking salvation. If you say, I'm going to throw away my cross and I don't want Christ in my life and I'm not going to, I don't care about salvation, that's okay. You might be okay. You might have no suffering for the rest of your life, maybe, which means God's really left you. However, if when after you've made your decision to throw away your cross and you go somewhere else and find someone else or do something else, and then you say, oh, what have I done? Oh, now I want salvation. Now I do want to be saved. And then you start praying for salvation. And God says, do you want salvation? You have to have a cross, some suffering in your life, whatever it's going to be. As I said, it could be a sickness. It could be... Something really, something that we suffer that helps us in our spiritual life. And then God says, do you want to be saved? Yes, I want to be saved now. Okay, then take this cross. In other words, one that's really bigger uh, than what you already have. Here it is, and now do it, which is worse than what it was when you first, with the cross that you had before. As I said at the beginning of the talk, we have to, and right through, we have to make sure that we have practiced spiritual life before we enter on the marriage because it will be a disaster if not, number one. If we've done a lot of that, not that we're going to be perfect when we get married, don't think that because you've done a lot of these things you're going to be perfect. It's a great help, but then when you enter the marriage then it becomes further struggles. But your question is that if you've got someone that you've met and you feel spiritually close and these all the things that we've mentioned today you can relate to, only God knows the right person. Listen to what others are telling you as well around you. It doesn't mean that they're right, but it's good to listen. Some people might be saying, 
she's not for you, your parents might be saying she's not for you. Well, take notice of that and go, why are they saying it? This woman said to me once, my husband, my father told me not to marry my husband because he just didn't, he just didn't want. And, then, and she goes, I didn't listen and I, and I got married and I can see that exactly what my father said about him is true. Another person told me, a man, he said to me, uh, my parents told me not to marry the woman that I, that I got married to. When I was single, they said, don't marry her. The parents weren't spiritual, but they cared for their, for their son, obviously. But even that, can, even that can be effective. They go, they said to him, don't marry her because she's got a big mouth. Do not marry her because she has a big mouth. That's what, that's, that's what they said. Anyway, he married her. At the end, what did he continually tell me? Her mouth, her mouth, her mouth, her mouth, her mouth. All the time, that marriage was a disaster, and a lot of it was to do with a lot of things, but one of them was her mouth. The mouth wouldn't stop putting him down, such that at one stage I remember that I, I was somewhere and then there was um, some commotion around a toilet, and then I go, what's going on? And I saw these people around this toilet, and I thought someone was sick. And they go, no, um, such and such is in there. It was, was a couple, a married couple. And so I so said, why are they in the toilet? And then they said, um, oh, because he's crying. He was crying. What? I didn't understand what was going on. He goes, yeah, because she ridiculed him in front of everyone and it just devastated him. What did his parents say? Don't marry her because she's got a big mouth. He, he made a decision to marry. That's fair enough. But sometimes our close ones are enlightened by God, especially if you are praying. So back to yours is if you have someone who you are seriously contemplating to get married, if you're not sure, wait. Time is really excellent. Patience is a virtue. Don't hurry. Always wait. And if it's meant to be, it will all happen with you as 100%. It just will all go smoothly and properly. It's God's will, you know. But if there's not sure and if there's friction and if there's problems and if people are saying things as well and there's all doubts and things like that, do not go forward. And then if these problems still occur and they don't really go down a bit, they weren't just hiccups or temptations, then you have to think to yourself, maybe it's not meant to be. But the main thing is you and the person and the other person praying that God will enlighten them if that person is for them. If it fails, don't say, I failed and I'm upset now. No, you didn't fail. It's good because you learnt. You learnt to pray. You learnt to watch. You learnt to wait. You learnt to listen. And you learnt this is not the person for me. This makes you one step stronger spiritually and better position for the next time. You don't have to marry a person not because you're in the courting level where, or even... After you've engaged, if you don't, if something's not right, don't do it. I've spoken to people weeks before their marriage, and they've said to me, um, they've got doubts or this and that. I said, don't do it. They go, oh, we can't because the catering's been already done. Give the catering to the poor. It doesn't matter. Oh, the dress has been done. Don't worry about the dress. 
Don't worry about the dress. Don't worry about that. If you've got doubt, don't do it. I remember a marriage, oh, that couple that I was saying before, that the woman in particular had doubt even in the marriage ceremony. Right up to the time that she got married, she had doubt that that person or that she shouldn't get married. That's it. I would say, if you get doubt just before the marriage, even before the marriage ceremony has started, or even within the marriage, if, if the priest says, have you been forced? Do you, with all your heart, want to marry this person? You have the right to say, no, I don't. And walk off. You're better off walking off than to get married and have children and produce catastrophes in this life. Any last ones? You know my attitude about TV. And in my younger years as a priest, if someone would come to me, and especially if they were using the TV for inappropriate things and all that, it was damaging them spiritually, I would say just give it a rest. Stop, stop. Just stop that for a while until you find yourself. Or music. I don't do that anymore. And you might say, well... Are you saying that as a priest you would allow the person to continue to listen to music? And the answer is, against how I was when I was younger, yes. Why? Because people are so much occupied their minds with music, 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 music. If you take away that source, you can make them go crazy. Now, I wouldn't tell them to listen to heavy metal and satanic things but listen to other things which are a bit calmer as much as possible and slowly, slowly, if possible, to come off it. It's like someone on heroin. If you stop the heroin or someone that's an alcoholic or someone who's on drugs, ice and all these other things, if you stop them abruptly from that, they can go crazy. They can jump off cliffs. It's very dangerous. It's the same with these things, and even though I'm going against what I always used to say, and I still believe TV to a large extent is bad, especially for young kids, adults, anyway, that's another topic, but young kids, but when someone comes to me who says to me, um, I listen to music, and then you watch them, how much? If they listen to music from when they were really young, they're not going to be able to stop. They're going to get sick mentally. A lot of them do. Some people stop cold turkey. Very rare. When I came to the church, yes, that happened to me. It just stopped. That doesn't mean I'm superior. That's just the way it happened. And I've seen other people that they don't stop cold, but there's a lot of people that can stop cold turkey and then come back to it later on. They fall back into that again later. So it's not important whether that's rare, but in general, people have to struggle. Say Mary of Egypt in the desert struggled. She used to have the music in her, in her head, she used to think about the food that she used to eat and the acquaintances that she used to have relationships with and all that. And she had to try and work all that out. So same in spiritual life. But when someone has been really, really intoxicated, one can say, with that stuff, it's very hard. Because I used to see Father Seraphim Rose, who actually used to say, oh, there's some old films, you know, some good films. And I go, why is he telling people to watch films? And I couldn't understand. I didn't judge him this time as of older, as a priest. I go, I'm very surprised. I believe he's a, he's a holy man. But why is he saying that people should listen to certain types of music, which are a bit more calming, but also certain old-fashioned films or even some modern films that have got meaning and this? And I go, why is he saying that? 
And then I realized he's not actually saying that to people that are in the church, people that are already struggling for years and this and that. They don't need that stuff. He's saying it to people that have come out, people that used to watch satanic things, for example, watch uh, um, really bad things. Suddenly, you, ca uh, you, you can't just say, stop, watch no visual, because they're used to the visual in their, mind, in their brains. They need stimulus. So you, and plus they've never learned anything from those films. So what St. Father Seraphim Rose did is he made them watch things that have got some meaning slowly, slowly to bring them off the off stuff, bring them into stuff which is a bit more human, some of these films, and then from there slowly, slowly into the spiritual. Some, some people, when you try to go straight to spiritual after being submerged in all that worldly stuff, you can actually become damaged too much if you go too much into it. And that's why I like those heroin addicts, the ones that take heroin, and they go on methadone programs where it's like a certain type of chemical, it's a drug, but it's, it's like the heroin, but it's like controlled by the doctors, slowly, slowly to make the person come off the heroin. And that's the same, I think, what Father Seraphim was trying to do. He's trying to make the person come off these addictions, which is the visual the music, and he makes them come off with these other things. It doesn't mean now if you're in the church, there's no need to watch that stuff. It depends on your spiritual life. But I'm talking about people that are, especially kids that have been brought up with it from young, when they grow up, you can't just say to them, stop, because they can go mad. That's um, an answer to your question. Yep. Proposing is good. I, from what I've seen, it's the man that proposes to the woman, even though feminists say, no, women can propose as well. They can do that. that, that that's up to them. But in an orthodox uh, lifestyle, the man um, proposes. If the woman likes someone and she says, well, I can't propose, what do you do? Well, I know some examples where women, some, a certain women had their eyes on someone. They actually like someone. And I, and, they, and I said, well, you can't go and propose. It doesn't work like that. They go, so what do you do? I go, pray. Pray. I, two examples I've got of two men that actually said, I like that fellow. I would like to marry him. I go, okay. Well, pray. Pray, and I'll pray as well. You pray. Um, they got their men. Both of them got married to those people. So they prayed. The guys weren't interested, actually. Both of those guys were not interested to marry that person, th those separate people, those girls, those women. The women were interested, they weren't. But through their prayers, and then slowly, slowly, those men began to become interested in them and said, I want to marry that person. I really want to marry that person. How, much, how sure are you? How sure are you want to marry? Of course, I knew these people. They said, 100%. I said, 100%? They go, yes, get married. And that was the... Um, the story. So you don't have to propose. If it's God's will, you pray. And even if, so as you're saying, you could be in a situation with friends and you might like someone and then you're coming closer to where you want to commit yourself, you're going to get married. But that person has not shown interest. If it's meant to be, then pray to God. If it's meant that person will become interested and approach you, if it's not him, someone else will come. It's not, not, not important. The main thing is, let God do the matchmaking, and the person that you will get will be the person for you one million percent.
If you use your own mind to work things out, then you're going to make a blunder because our minds are dark and a lot of times we don't know. And you might say, well, if God chooses it and I don't want, do I have to marry? No. But if you're praying, you will feel that you will want that person. It will be blessed and you will want that person as well. That's it. Any other things? We're finished. Yes. Well, it wouldn't be just, for example, you know, if the person, as I said before, can just vacuum. That's not a condition. Um, we said that you are praying, firstly, and then you're looking at the person. There has to be an attraction, yes. Obviously, there'll be an attraction. We have to be careful that the attraction is not just last emotional sickness, because a lot of us emotionally are sick, and that explains why these pedophiles, for example, that they, you know, they become attracted because emotionally they're sick. Somehow they're distorted and the passions work and the demons work. And other people that get unnatural attractions towards relatives and things like that, it's the emotions that are sick. Uh, that's on them. That's on that level, which is serious. But also there are people who can become emotionally attached to someone, but it's not a real spiritual attraction. Look for virtue. Look for the person like they did. Look for virtue, kindness, regard. Like I, I remember one girl, she says, I went out with this fellow and I thought maybe and whatever, whatever. And then he goes, and all the time that we were together, he never asked once anything about me. He only spoke about himself. Why would you marry someone like that? If he only speaks about yourself and doesn't even ask anything about you. Now, there are con artists, both in women and men, who actually can act perfect. They can even act spiritual. Oh, how are you? And they say, oh, yes, I've been praying. Like, they're really like chameleons, they're called. They're called um, people who can act something that they're not. And you can believe that they are really spiritual and genuine and this and that. Later on, when you're married, they notice that they're not that. St. John Christum says that. Uh, that's really bad. That's why you always got to pray. Use your mind. Use your logic. Ask God. Ask for enlightenment. Ask for discernment. But most of all, ask Him that if this person's not meant for you, that's the most important thing. You can look at everything. You can go through this list and look at everything. But the most important thing is to ask God with all your heart, is this person for me? If it's not for me, dissolve it. I don't care how you do it, dissolve it. Even if it means to take me from this life rather than to marry this person and lose my soul in a marriage which is a disaster. Even if you've got the boldness to say, take me. Take me, I'd rather die than do something to be in a situation which is going to cause my soul to be lost. If you don't want to go that far, then at least say, do whatever you can, please dissolve it. That's the ultimate. The other things, what I've said in this talk, we need to do as human beings, we have to do that, ultimately is God is the one who knows which person is for us. And if we ask, it might turn out that the person is not for you, that you might become a monastic at the end. It might turn out that that person is not for you, but it might be another person in five years' time. Or it might, you might go through about five or six courting things, as long as they're done properly. And you might say, oh, God's forgot me and why is this happening? And like, you know, you start complaining. No, don't complain. If you're praying 
And these things are happening. For example, I wanted to become a monastic in 1983. I wanted to serve the church very much early in when I first came to spiritual life. But then I became in 1991. And during that process, I'm speaking from experience, I used to say, but why? I want to serve the church. I want to, I want to do what I'm doing now. And um, nothing would happen. Just nothing would happen. I began to think, well, I don't know. I just thought to myself, well, maybe at times I complained and thought maybe God does not listen to me or whatever, 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 whatever. But at the end, I realized that I wasn't ready and that I had to do another eight years teaching in the schools. I didn't want to, not that I wasn't a good teacher because I was quite successful as a teacher, but it wasn't fulfilling me. And I say, why am I here teaching simultaneous equations and quadratic equations when I could be serving the church and preaching, which is what I love doing? Because I used to also do talks as a layperson. That's what I wanted to do. And it didn't work. Nothing worked. And it took eight more years until finally I... And I was 33. I thought to myself, well, that's it. Nothing's going to happen. But that's what was God's will. And now looking back, I say to myself, that eight years actually helped me a lot to understand more of life and to struggle more as a single person and to relate to other people and to learn to pray. I mean, if I didn't go through those eight years and I became back in 83, but I didn't even know much of how to pray, I didn't even know much about anything, and all of a sudden I become a priest and then all of a sudden I get bombarded with all temptations, how will I do with it? I mean, I don't even know. So, yes, that was meant for me. Now, other people pray and they might stay single all their life. If that's what's meant to be, let it be. It's not. It's just be what... Do your spiritual life and God will, will, will give you what's the best for you. Another thing is that there are people more and more today that are emotionally not well. A lot of people are mentally unwell and I would say to them, even though I never thought of it before, it's better if you don't feel strength, uh, strong, if you haven't done really well as a single life, you still can't pray properly, you still can't do much in spiritual life, better to stay single, better to go into the, go into the next life responsible for yourself rather than get married and be responsible for your wife or your husband and your children, whatever, and give, have to give word after you've created a mess. Now, there are others who aren't mentally unwell, who aren't sick, they haven't got problems, but they just, God didn't allow them to get married. It doesn't mean that that's bad as well. Okay. But in general, more and more and more and more, I'm noticing that I am more supportive of people not getting married if they have problems, especially even these simple things, you know, what, I mean, you, might, you might say, oh, because someone uh, has 10 credit cards, you can't get married. No, you can't get married. If you've got 10 credit cards and you can't control your finances, then you're not going to be in a position and look at all those people today that wanted to have big things and boats and cars and houses, etc., etc., and look at the situation. Like, we've got people becoming disturbed, people are committing suicide, etc. These are bad financing things. You know, you don't go and get a loan at 100%, and then you've got not even a deposit, 
And then when the interest rate goes up a bit, all of a sudden you've got to leave. Do you know what, how that is for your family to be thrown out of their house by sheriffs, etc., um, when you can't afford the loan? All these things are bad. And this all come because those people didn't think correctly. A very holy elder in Athens who he had a lot of people around him who were single. Women that were, and men, but women that were 40, 50, 55 years old, single women. A lot of them. And sometimes when they're a bit younger, say 30 or something, they go, oh, I want to get married. And he goes, what do you want to do that for? And when I thought of that, I go, what's he talking about? What's he actually mean? And I understood now as years went on and I started to read more things and my experience a little bit from dealing with people, that some people are not in the position to get married. They're better off to stay single. They give less word and they can still be very fruitful as single people in the world serving Christ rather than bringing children to the world which they can't take care of and later on having to give word because St. John Chrysostom says a person who does not bring up his children in a spiritual way is a murderer. He's murdering their souls. So what would you rather be judged? A person who stayed single or a person that had children and will give word for being murderers of the children's souls? And another thing where I said in the first two talks before, one other thing, I said if you have sexual temptation, you should get married. Yes, if you're spiritual. Better to give word as that, as a single person, rather than give word as a person who got married when they weren't, when they weren't functional and God showed that they shouldn't have got married, and then they have children and, have be, and will be accused in the next life as murderers of soul. Work it out, which is the worst. And if you read St. John Chrysostom, he says the same. There are certain sins which are less, some that are worse. St. John Chrysostom says, a single person who falls cannot be on the same level as a married person who falls. A person who's, got, who's married and falls when they've got their husband and wife. You can't put them on the same level. One's very serious, one is serious but not as serious. Through the prayers of the Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, the God of mercy, save us. Amen.